Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell. I've just finished chatting with Professor Laurie Goodyear from the Johnson Diabetes Center at the Harvard Medical School. She has an amazing track record in exercise metabolism. Uh, for many years, she was looking at the regulation of glucose uptake during exercise. She's also done a lot of research on fat metabolism during exercise. More recently, she's been looking at the beneficial effects of a paternal and maternal exercise on offspring health. So, for example, um, if your father, well, these are rodent studies, but if the father exercises, then the offspring are protected from diabetes, um, including if the father's on a high-fat diet, um, also if the mother's on a high-fat diet and she exercises either before, during, or both before and during the, the um, pregnancy, the offspring are protected from developing uh, insulin resistance and diabetes. So quite remarkable findings. Um, so here we're talking about um, epigenetics. So, you know, everyone's familiar with genetics, but this is actually uh, epigenetics. So, you know, what you do in your lifetime can affect what is passed on to the next generation. And indeed, we talk a little bit about her really exciting recent findings that even the grandparents, so if the grandmother exercises, again, rodents, um, the grandchildren are protected to some extent. So really quite remarkable. And these findings do appear to have relevance to humans. Um, so we talk a little bit about her studies in that regard. We also talk a little bit about some of the research I've done along similar lines. So in the end, it's really quite remarkable that, that if the, you know, the mother exercises, the father exercises, or even in some of my studies, if the offspring exercise early in life, they can overcome some of the um, developmental um, effects so we're talking here about developmental origins of health and disease. So if you've had a poor environment either before conception, during pregnancy, uh, or, or even early in life, you can, you know, exercise can have beneficial effects. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. So stick around. Hi, Laurie. How are you? It's been a while. It's great to see you, Glenn. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited. So um it's been a while. Last time I saw you, I think it was like 10, 15 years ago or something crazy. I think at the American Diabetes Association Conference. And we were we were both doing sort of AMPK and glucose uptake and things. And now, strangely enough, we both ended up sort of moving on and, you know, amongst other things, looking at this thing we'll be focusing on today, which is the parental effects on offspring health. So your mother and or your father, what they do with exercise can affect the offspring. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. So you're you're at Harvard. And uh and why don't you just explain a little bit where you are and how you actually ended up doing exercise metabolism research? Because quite a few of the people I come on that come on here that they were like athletes and then they thought they wanted to study it. Other people were scientists and then got interested in exercise. How did you end up doing what you're doing? Well, um, when I was uh, an undergraduate um, at Springfield College, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought maybe some sort of management, but uh, I took an exercise physiology class and um, absolutely loved it, thought it was so fascinating. And that summer, I actually had an internship and I lived with a family outside of Boston. I was an intern for the New England Patriots, the, the football oh. team. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and the and uh, the family that I stayed with, they had a son who had type one diabetes, 
and we would go out for runs. And this was so long ago that he was actually testing his urine um, with strips um, oh, wow. to look at his glucoses. And it was just so amazing to see how much of an effect exercise had um, on blood sugar levels. Um, and this guy who was basically a 20 year old, uh, otherwise healthy guy who had type one diabetes. And it really piqued my interest having just taken exercise physiology. And I really wanted to understand how did this happen? How is it that exercise can be so beneficial for people with, uh, with diabetes? And then of course, also thinking about people with type two diabetes. So that led me then in my senior year in college to look into um, graduate programs in exercise physiology. I ended up at the University of South Carolina for a master's degree. Um, it was a fantastic experience. I had great advisors um, uh, and it, it was really, I learned so much. Um, and then I took a couple years, it was a pretty intense program. So I took a couple years off and I um, went and did exercise physiology research at the Nike Sport Research Lab at the time, which was in Exeter, New Hampshire. That was also a really very interesting experience that I really enjoyed. Uh, learned some things about um, running and uh, muscle damage that occurs with running, did some work in collaboration with people at University of Massachusetts uh, in Amherst. Um, but this whole time really had the idea um, from the time I started exercise physiology research that I really want to understand basic science and basic mechanisms of what happens. So I went to the University of Vermont to work with Ed Horton, who was studying exercise and diabetes. He was uh, actually was the chair of medicine at, at, um, at University of Vermont and had this great research program going on studying glucose metabolism and exercise. And our lab was one of the first to show GLUT4 translocation with insulin and with exercise in skeletal muscle. Um, and that just, uh, then my career just went from there. Um, ended up uh, doing a postdoc at the Joslin Diabetes Center, uh, Harvard, um, uh, with a Harvard uh, appointment as a fellow. And then just... Um, didn't thought I was going to be here in Boston for two years. And now I've been here my entire career. So um, that's kind of a long story, but it, it really uh, is pretty amazing that I, I got interested in something when I was an undergraduate and I actually stayed with it and um, continued my career in uh, what I started out to do, which I know most people that doesn't happen. I tell my kids all the time, you know, you don't end up necessarily where you think you're going, but, um, and I probably never thought that I would end up, uh, um, you know, having this research career all these years, but it's, it's been fantastic. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I heard, especially in America that apparently people go through like five different careers or something. And I think yes, I'm a bit, quite often, yeah. I'm a bit conservative or something. I haven't done that. <laughs> That's yeah. interesting. Well, it's a good thing you took that exercise class. And it's also yeah. interesting because you, I didn't realize you'd gone through that sort of applied because that, you know, for me, for example, I was a runner and then I, I was interested in that. And then I got into the science that yeah. you sort of didn't start off that way, but you kind of went applied and then you became mechanistic. So that's interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's great background there with GLUT4. So people would know, I think, you know, GLUT4 is, we've talked about anyway, if they've seen many of these podcasts, is a glucose yeah. transporter which is involved in like moving um, glucose into the muscle, for example, um, which we're particularly interested in. So that was how I got to know your work mainly. We were both looking at regulation of glucose uptake, mm -hmm. role of AMP kinase. I think I'm going to do something on that um, coming up at some stage. I okay. can't, I have to Great. do something on that. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah, so all sorts of amazing stuff with glucose metabolism. But now I guess it's fair to say um, you're doing a lot with, with sort of developmental origins of health and disease, but still an interest in glucose metabolism, yeah? Yes. So um, why don't you just give us a bit of a background on this on this DOHAD, developmental origins of health and disease, how we even sort of started thinking about that and, and, and then it's ended up with the sort of studies you're doing nowadays. Yeah. So I, I, it was quite a while ago, I don't know exactly when, but we started hearing uh, in seminars, Jocelyn has an unbelievable seminar series program where we bring in people from all over, um, leading experts in all aspects of diabetes. Um, and there were lectures really talking about this awareness that, um, that the, you know, the, the influence that uh, the mother's particularly initially um, could have on the offspring in terms of their metabolic health. Um, and um, Mary Elizabeth Patty, who, was at, who is at Joslin and was at Joslin at the time, was doing work on intrauterine uh, restriction, and um, we got involved with some of that. Um, but I think the, the, the striking fact that really kept playing in my head is that there, there was more and more data that either nutrition, nutrition in terms of undernutrition or overnutrition seemed to result in these problems, uh, metabolic problems in the offspring, um, either with animal models and, and in some cases in human studies. So the Dutch, the so-called Dutch famine studies where um, um, the, during World War II and there was a, a blockade and, um, you know, in, in the Netherlands and uh, there were women that were pregnant and they were rationed very, very low calories. Um, and what has been discovered in some really important papers is that uh, the children and even the grandchildren of these women that were food deprived and really starved during this time period ended up having increased rates of obesity, metabolic disease, cardiometabolic mm -hmm. disease. Um, so this happens with undernutrition. There, there's also, there was also evidence that this could be happening with overnutrition as the world is becoming more obese. We're seeing the cycle of the parents who are obese or the mother's obese during pregnancy leading to obese children. So we really start to think about, well, if this is, if there's, you know, such terrible consequences of obesity, perhaps there could be beneficial consequences of the mother being active. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we would have loved to have started these studies in humans, but the, they would take 30, 40, 50, 60 years to mm -hmm. do. Um, and so we went to animal models and we started to do studies where we would um, uh, have women, not women, have, have, have mice, female mice that were um, um, pregnant, exercising, doing voluntary wheel running. So putting them in a cage where they could run as much as they want, but also at the same time do another set of um, female mice that were treated with a high fat diet to mimic the effects of obesity. Um, and then to see what would happen to the offspring um, once, uh, if they exercised um, while they were pregnant. So that's kind of how it, it really came from listening, thinking about what's happening in humans, um, and then thinking, okay, can we can we reverse this? Is there a means to reverse this? And then going to the animal models uh, to try to understand what the metabolic consequences to the children would be, the offspring of the mice. Yeah, it's quite amazing actually how how several of us have ended up looking at this area. So and and all of us started off looking at regulation of glucose uptake. So I had. Uh, Jorgen Modicheski, who I know, he did a postdoc with you, right? 
Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he 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 was um on last week talking about insulin action and exercise, mm-hmm. and and so I started doing some stuff with the with the as you said the interuterine growth restriction, and the next thing I saw Jorgen was doing some stuff with Bon Swan and exercise, and then I saw you were doing stuff, and it's like holy mackerel, but um yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. So that so the stuff we did was um yeah in rats as well because as you say it means you can study. Because um, rats only live for like two years, I think. If um, maybe it's a little longer. longer, it depends. Yeah, they depends don't usually. The yes, um, obviously, it's not always a happy ending with the studies we do. So they don't they don't usually live as long as that. But um, it means you can study them over. You know, so for example, we you know you can look at look at them um, their offspring at like six six months of age. They they wean at like um, nine weeks and things like that. Yeah, so. Um, why don't we why don't we touch on the fact that this 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 thing controversy over many years about uh, evolution and then there was someone called Lamarck a long time ago that was saying for example the classic thing which is um if a giraffe is uh you know why do giraffes end up with long necks and you know obviously Darwinian evolution is that the ones that with longer necks made it with other ones with longer necks because they had better chance to reach the top of the tree or whatever and then the necks ended up longer. Lamarck was sort of saying because they're stretching their necks, they would pass that on, and that's very simplistic. Why don't we just talk about that and introduce some of these terms, and then then we'll talk about specifics of what you found. Do you mind just fleshing that out slightly without you know getting into the, but just the you know maybe Lamarck was kind of half right and whatever, yeah. Oh, in terms of Uh, in terms of what we're in terms of what we're looking at here, and you know the term epigenetics. If we start thinking about about the fact you can pass on your genes, but you can also okay. pass on markers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, well, I should say that once we we did the initial studies um, and we found that if the moms exercised uh, both at a period of before the pregnancy and during the pregnancy, when we studied the offspring, um, they had, there were, tremendous beneficial effects of the mother's exercising and this was keeping the offspring controlled so the offspring did not have access to wheel cages they were not doing spontaneous exercise they were not eating more even their body weights really weren't changing when they were young they weren't any different so just by virtue of the mother exercising something was being passed on to these offspring Mm. and these were siblings Uh, well the mothers were were siblings so we didn't, there really weren't big differences in the, there should not be a difference in the genetic makeup of these females. Um, so it really suggests that something was happening beyond genes or what's often referred to as epigenetics. And mm-hmm. epigenetics being um, modifications, um, not of the DNA sequence, but in the way the, the DNA is really regulated. Um, so you can have um, methylation of uh, the DNA at, at spe- specific promoters of genes that are very important, um, and that um, there can be regulation or methylation of these promoter areas of these genes, and this can be altered um, uh, in in the animal in the in the fetus, um, and this can be changed and then have effects. Um, as they get older, because then uh, levels of gene expression can change, and then cha- changes in protein can occur also. So this is this so-called uh, 
uh, epigenetic regulation. It's not just methylation, but also you can have um, changes in histones, which are what keeps the DNA together in a sense and allows the DNA to open up so it can be turned into um, messenger RNA and then onto protein. So histones are important. So methylation is important in histones. And also um, microRNAs are important because they can regulate the DNA. So it's really epigenetics mm -hmm. are regulating the DNA without actually changing the, the base pairs. Um, and so um, we have studied uh, the effects of the maternal exercise on epigenetic regulation um, and um, you know, we think that it's not just about the genetic component. Obviously, genetic component is extremely important, but it's also this epigenetics that is regulating what's happening to the offspring. Exactly. So before before epigenetics was discussed and now is pretty much, uh, you know, uh, accepted, one would think whatever they did in their life didn't make any difference. So I remember we used to talk about... Um, you know, oh, why is it that if you've got two athletes, they tend to have sometimes have an, an offspring that's, that's you know, good. And you say, well, it's because they've got good genes and you don't tend to think about anything they did. So you tend to think, well, it wouldn't have mattered if they were runners or not during their life. They had those good genes and they passed it on the offspring. They passed them on the offspring. It didn't make any difference what they did during their life. But now we know what you do during your life. So, you know, you've touched on, um, you know, I think you said already high fat diets or obese, obese off, um, parents affects the offspring. So now we know um, what you do during your life makes a difference. So those genes didn't change. If, if they were obese or not obese, their genes didn't change. But because right. they were obese, they affected these epigenetic markers. Um, so basically you, you sort of change these things. Sometimes the epigenetics is kind of above the genes. So it's kind of like the little markers that are on the genes they get passed on. Is that is that a fair fair way of summarizing? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's yeah. what uh, it's what what these marks get passed on to the offspring, um, and then can affect them, um, you know, through the through the rest of potentially through the rest of, of their lives of the offspring. Yeah. So Lamarck, I know it's controversial. So, but if Lamarck was still around, he'd be saying, "Well, it was because you know partly because they were stretching their necks, you know, that it got passed on." But um, yeah. 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 So, so why don't we talk a little bit about what you've done? So, so you've done, um, you've done a beast or high, high fat feeding. I want to separate that out a bit later and say how much is the high fat feeding and how much is the obesity. But so obese mums, obese dads, you've exercised the dads, you've exercised the mums and you've yeah. got to the offspring. So why don't you take us through that? Maybe, I don't know, mums first. And then, cause mums, people can sort of get that, you know, that you've right. got a pregnant mum and if she runs on the treadmill or whatever, well, right. whatever she yeah. does, you can imagine yeah. that having a benefit. The weird mm -hmm. thing is to think about the dad, um, especially as if, if your studies were like mine, we had the conception and then the dad was gone. He was no longer in the picture, right. but it still had the effects on the offspring. So, Right. So, so with the, the experiments with the moms, we, um, we looked um, at the different um, timing of exercise um, in our first study. So, we took some females and we exercised them. And again, we didn't exercise them. They did voluntary exercise. So they exercise as much as they want. Um, so this is less, it's, it's not stressful. stressful. For the animals. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had a group that was in cages that didn't have wheels and animals that were in cages that 
did have wheels. Um, and the moms either exercise for two weeks before the pregnancy. And then once they got pregnant, they didn't exercise anymore because mm -hmm. um, their cages didn't have wheels or they exercised for the two weeks before they became pregnant and they stayed in those cages um, with the wheels during this. It's about a three week gestation for mice. Um, and then we had a group that only were put in the cages with the wheels after they were pregnant. So you had a group that exercised before pregnancy, just during the pregnancy, and then a group that exercised both before and during the pregnancy. Um, wow. It's pretty amazing how much they exercise, uh, mice exercise mm -hmm. when given a wheel. They do a huge amount of exercise. Um, you know, we see anywhere from six to 10 kilometers a day. Um, in, yes. uh, in in animals um, and females are the same when before they're pregnant. Once they become pregnant, they continue to exercise, but the curve kind of comes down. Mm -hmm. But still, even in the third trimester, which is the last week of a mouse's pregnancy, they're still doing about two kilometers a day. So they're getting they're getting exercised and they're you know exercise responses and things. So um, they have you know if you you look at the muscles of the of the um, pregnant females that have exercised you'll see adaptations to the muscle that you would see in an animal that wasn't pregnant um mm -hmm. and, and then um the females are you know they give birth and then we study these offspring anywhere um, from about four weeks of age when when mice wean out into a year and we've even studied some animals out even later than that so a year is about middle age in a mouse um, and what we find is that if the mom exercises um, you see that well first I should say if the mom doesn't exercise yeah. say um, at both male and female offspring, as they get older, their glucose tolerance gets worse. So they become more insulin resistant, they get uh, more glucose tolerant. But if the mom exercised, this effect of this aging effect of glucose tolerance getting worse is almost completely um, gone. It's the levels are like, look like a younger animal. The glucose levels are lower. They look like a younger animal. Same thing with insulin concentrations, which we know are so important. The lower the insulin concentrations, the better. Um, and these are much lower than mom exercise. Now, if you all, if you had enough, we had another group of animals that were fed a high fat diet and um, they become somewhat obese. It's not a really long-term high mm. fat feeding that is done. It's only for the two weeks and throughout the gestation. Um, so this high fat feeding um, is done, but the, again, the moms are exercising um, in one group and the other group is sedentary. So in the sedentary group, the moms that ate the high fat diet, their offspring, it's really remarkable how much worse their glucose tolerance is. Again, just by virtue of the mom eating that high fat diet um, and insulin levels are higher. It's just bad news for these mice offspring mm -hmm. if their moms yes, ate a high yes. fat diet. But if the moms exercised, had that access to the wheel before and during the exercise, they are the offspring are completely normal. Completely, completely normal. They have no bad effects of the mom. Um, and I should say, all the offspring they eat they, they eat the same diet, just a regular diet. They they don't have access to any exercise. Um, their body weights, at least at the younger ages, are are the same. So it's really due to the mom having exercise. Um, during, before and during the pregnancy. 
not much of, like I said, not much of an effect if the mom's exercised just before or just during the, the pregnancy, but they, they really see the best effect if the mom's exercised both before and during the pregnancy. So it's really, we were just astounded by these data. Yeah. What's what was really interesting, I think, is that we don't see these effects when the animals are younger so much. We only see them when they get older. I should have mentioned that earlier. So it's uh -huh. kind of like with humans, right? I mean, most kids yeah. don't end up with diabetes or high blood sugar. I mean, we know this is happening more and more as kids are becoming more sedentary and more obese. So same thing with the mice. They don't really start to have much of a problem until they get older. And But as soon as those, those glucose homeostasis starts to get bad, glucose metabolism gets bad, that's when the mom exercises. That, that really kicks in to keep the offspring um, healthier. Now, that's really interesting on many levels, and I've got lots of thoughts. The first one is, I guess, I, with the earlier stuff I was talking about, just with the high-fat diet, how and the obesity, how you could you know, have beneficial effects of the exercise. But one thing I wanted to pick on up on, is you said even the control animals that weren't on a high-fat diet, they, um, that their offspring became insulin resistant, et cetera, yeah, later in life, yeah. which is what happens in humans as well yeah. in general. Yeah. Um, and I guess, especially if they have sedentary, but, um, but then you were able to prevent that by the, the mother's exercising the or, mother's or slow it yeah. slow mm -hmm. it as well yeah yeah so that's amazing yeah so yeah. but then if you've got i guess with the obese parents you've just shifted everything so it's worse and it happens earlier i guess yeah. and the exercise yeah. is preventive uh, prevents yeah. this as well yeah. um yeah wow and they actually normalized so you're saying if they if the mom does They're exercise, normalized. Yeah, during, they, yeah okay yeah. if the if the mom ate the high fat diet and exercise the the offspring will look normal throughout throughout the first year of life anyway so so yeah so, so then we went on and we really wanted to understand the mechanism and to make um several years worth of work very short what we discover are there's huge changes mm. in the placenta um and the placenta secretes factors um and one in particular that we call we don't call it but is known as uh superoxide dismutase 3 or mm. sod 3 and mm -hmm. SOD3 is coming out of the placenta, not coming out, but but is going to the, you can, sh it shows up in the maternal blood and it also shows up in the fetal blood. Um, and it's having dramatic effects on the liver. And the liver is the major, one of the major regulators of glucose control. So this placental protein um, acts on the liver of the fetus the liver is much healthier in the fetus and throughout the, you know, at least the first year of life. And so we think this, this SOD3 protein is absolutely key in this. The other really interesting observation that we've made and that we're studying um, in great detail now is that you need the mother to also have a normal vitamin D diet in order for this effect to ha happen. Um, and we discovered that because we wanted to see what is the transcription factor or what's the factor mm -hmm. that's causing this SOD3 protein to increase. Because if we can figure that out, then we can try to translate this to humans, right? And we can make more SOD3. So what do we need? And what we found is the vitamin D receptors uh, is essential for this effect for the, ex the maternal exercise to increase SOD3. So then we did the studies. Well, can we just mimic then the effects of exercise by treating with vitamin D? Um, right? Because again, translationally, we think, well, 
if mothers are on bed rest, can we just give them vitamin D and we can get these benefits of exercise? Um, so we did those studies. And what we found is that we definitely need vitamin D to have the effects. So if you take out the vitamin D out of the mouse's diet, the exercise effect is gone. But unfortunately, if you just treat with high levels of vitamin D, you don't mimic the effects of exercise. So you have to have vitamin D, but it can't fully replace the effects of exercise. So you really need vitamin D and exercise in order to have these beneficial effects on the offspring. So what we've done in the meantime is we've done some human studies um, where we've looked at the SOD3 protein. We've looked at it in, in mothers who are very active versus mothers who are do virtually no exercise during their pregnancy. And sure enough, the mothers that do this high level of activity have higher levels of SOD3 in their placenta and higher levels of SOD3 in, in their um, blood. And so we think that this, what's happening in the mice is probably also happening in the women. So we're trying to do more studies now. We're trying to understand how vitamin D in women uh, may affect this. We're thinking about, okay, women who are pregnant during the winter versus, you know, mm -hmm. pregnant, you know, in the sunshine when they're getting vitamin D. So it's kind of uh, opens. Uh, so the people who study vitamin D are very interested in this work now too, right? Because it, it could have really important implications for um, for women and having healthy pregnancies and um, having healthy offspring. Um, that's so that's really interesting. a lot of the uh, maternal, so, maternal work that we're doing. How did you actually get on to the, so SOD3 is superoxide dismutase. So are we talking about free radicals? So people, a lot of people would know about free radicals or would have heard of them are yeah. uh, being produced, I guess, and SOD3 is mopping that up. Is that the idea? And, they, and then you well, have more SOD3 or? Yeah, so actually SOD3, back to AMP kinase, right? Okay. SOD3 activates AMP kinase, and that's what we found. Um, we had heard, we had, there had been one study, well, we, so we did mass spectrometry to, identi well, we, um, to identify um, serum factors that would, might be regulating this process going on in the liver, this epigenetic process. So, mm -hmm. um, and so we were looking for serum factors and we did, so we took serum from pregnant females and sedentary females. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, we also took, um, so we took, we took serum from females that were pregnant and also trained. Mm -hmm. um, and compare that with sedentary serum from sedentary females. Um, and we found all these different proteins that were different between the yeah. sedentary and the trained. And then we narrowed it down for virtual aspects of what we had seen. But then the final thing was, does it activate, does this factor activate AMP kinase? Because we had already shown that AMP kinase was important in this epigenetic effect. Anyway, long story short, mm -hmm. we figured this. We found this SOD3 protein. It's known to act, it had been shown in other in another cell type to activate AMPK, the mechanism by which it happens. We don't really know. We think that SOD3 does probably have some antioxidant effects, but we can't just treat treat um, these animals with an antioxidant and get the same effect okay. as SOD3. So it's a pretty complicated system, right? You have SOD3 going up, you have vitamin D you need, There's uh, and then you activate this entire signaling cascade that regulates the methylation and the epigenetic regulation that then leads to 
the improvement in glucose tolerance. And we figured this all out using knockout animals, placental specific knockout animals. Mm. So the bottom line is you need sod, you need the exercise. You need the placenta right. to make sod three. You need adequate vitamin D. And then you need these effects on the liver and all those things together as you know, the body is very complicated, but all those things together then make the offspring healthy as they're aging. That's interesting. Now, just to maybe prevent people racing out and, and getting vitamin D, I, I noticed a couple of times well, that's you the said point, normal, right? normal vitamin D. Yeah, so you, you don't need... You need to have normal levels of vitamin D. So if you're completely deficient in vitamin D, then the benefits of exercise are probably not going to be there for your for the offspring. Um, again, these are based on animal studies. We're trying to study this now in humans too. Um, but you can't take mega doses of vitamin D, which is basically what we did with the mice. We gave them mega doses. We take, gave them high doses of vitamin D to see if that could mimic the effects of the maternal exercise, and it couldn't. There was some additivity in the effect. Um, so if you had exercise and high vitamin D, it was a little bit better, but um, it was not, you couldn't just have, it didn't result in mimicking the effects of the exercise. Okay. Now, now this one, um, when you're talking about the mother exercising and affecting, affecting the offspring, and it's something that's actually happening while she's pregnant, that's kind of easier to get your head around than the, the dad. So again, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what you did with your studies. You can tell us, but the ones we did, we, we had the father on a high fat diet and then they literally conceived. And then the next yeah. day he was gone. We literally, you know, we, he died, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, so, so, so then it's, it's kind of a bit harder to think about what's going on that, that then, for example, we found, and I think you found as well, that if you then, um, exercise the mother, you can, you can fix something that, that happened from the father. Do you want to just flesh that out a little bit what you think is going on there? Yeah. So, so we did, so we did studies uh, initially just with the, with the dads exercising, um, and we, we found um, very clear effects of the dad exercising on the offspring. The data looked very similar to when the moms exercise. And again, these are done before, prior to the breeding. So the animals would do voluntary wheel running for about three weeks, and then they would, um, um, you know, breed with the females. And then the females weren't treated, uh, the offspring weren't treated, but still by virtue of the dad exercising, the offspring were much healthier. And it, and it also, again, uh, had beneficial effects, even despite um, the animals where the dads were eating high fat diets. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, so it was pretty remarkable. So we have done studies analyzing the sperm um, and we, we do see some changes in the sperm. We see changes in um, um, motility of the sperm. Um, we're also doing work on looking at um, small non-coding RNAs, um, and we see changes there. Um, and we're doing uh, more work on this now to really try to understand what the mechanism is, um, as to how these, um, how this is passed on um, to the offspring. Um, and very, you know, very important work also to try to understand how it is that males are are able to do this. And, uh, you know, um, there are studies going on at Joslin um, now. Mary Elizabeth Patty is doing some of this work where they're looking at um, the dads um, and uh, what what changes in, in, or not the dads, but in a, in a male, what happens when they 
exercise, what happens when they eat, you know, have poor diets or, um, and what happens to the sperm? What's the molecular regulation of the sperm that may then be affecting the offspring in the future? So it's pretty interesting there. You'd have, think, you'd have to think there's very different mechanisms. So, you know, with the mother, you were talking about um, the placenta, obviously with yeah. the father, it's, it's not, but you, but you ended up with quite similar. Um, very similar metabolic, yeah. Yeah. So we, we need to do more work on this. We need to understand it better. Um, in, with the maternal exercise, we don't see much of an effect in the offspring on their skeletal muscle. We think it's largely in the liver and the, in the, in the males, we think that there's, it looks like there's some effects on the muscle of the offspring. So it, it probably is a different mechanism. We've also done the studies where we've, um, combined, We've had four groups, the dad's exercise, the mom exercise, and both the mom and dad's exercise, and then the sedentary animals. Uh, we want to see if there was an additive effect. Mm -hmm. there, there does tend to be a bit of an additive effect if both, um, if both parents exercise. We did those studies under high-fat feeding conditions. We didn't do it under the chow just because eight groups. So many groups. <laughs> yeah, so many groups. And one of the mm. things that you know, people that do research, the difference here is that every pup that is born is not uh, an N of one. It's uh, it's the entire litter that you study is is the mm -hmm. N. So, so typically, you know, in order, if you want to have a group of eight, um, you need at least four. That's really 32 that you're studying. So um, you can imagine if you have eight groups and it's, you're talking about thousands of animals. It becomes tricky as well that you, you ideally you want to have like eight offspring from each right. litter and then you have right, one then... in each group and whatever, but that doesn't always right. work right. out, especially right. uh, you mentioned you did a bit, we did the uterine growth restriction. So you reduce the, the blood flow to the, to right. the uterus and then yeah. you actually end up, you don't have as many offspring. So then it's really hard to to right, separate them out well, yeah so can i just one other point that i should have made when we were when i mm, we were talking sure. about the maternal exercises we've also done studies of grand maternal exercise mm. so when the grandmothers exercise um and these data are really really remarkable also and we find that um with the mice if the moms if the what ends up being the grandmothers if they exercise before and during the pregnancy and then we take what we call the F1 or the first generation, we take the males um, and then we, uh, at, when they're only eight weeks of age, before they have any effect of the mothers having uh, on their glucose tolerance, because that comes later. But if, they, if you breed those males at eight weeks to an, uh, you know, just sedentary females, the offspring or the grand offspring have improved glucose tolerance. Yes. So it's not just the maternal, the moms having an effect, but if the grandma's exercise, the grandmother's exercise, the offspring are much more healthy. Um, and uh, so we published this, this this past year and it's gotten some attention in the press because, mm. you know, oh. what your grandma did, what your grandmother that, did. That was the... Can affect you. That was the one that actually, you know, I already I had you on my list already. But when I saw that paper, that was quite recent, the grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw that, it's like, okay, we've got to get you on. That's pretty awesome. What about if you go the other way? So you've got the grandmother exercising and then how many generations, I mean, you can't look at everything and it's, and it's big studies, but do you know how many generations it lasts for? So if you exercise. No, we haven't, mm. we haven't gone beyond the, the mm. second generation. Um, it takes years to do those studies uh, because you because we we wait we don't study animals when they're young right we study animals when they're um, 
you know, a year old, that's, that's when we study them. So in all yeah. the breeding and the multiple generations. And then if you think about it, if you do the math, right, because again, the N is not the number of pups you're studying. It's the grandmother is the N. And you think about multiple generations and how many animals mm. you're actually studying. So we have to always do these studies by cohort. So there's multiple cohorts. And yeah, it's a, it's, if you look at the math, like I said, if you look oh, at yeah. the math, pretty remarkable what about the dad you haven't done you can't do anything again but we haven't done the grandfather second generation yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. all these studies are um you know very they they take a while certainly they don't take as long as if you were doing these studies (laughs) many many decades right and um but um yeah the the studies take a while in it and um there are many mice uh, that were that are studied in these in these experiments so one thing I wanted to get back to was the, the you made the point a couple of times about how it was wheel running, yeah. So yeah. you know this is where you put a, a running wheel um, in in the cage, and they they choose to run. Now, even the ones that are on a high fat diet, they don't run as much. Yeah? So does that make it hard to compare? Mm. Oh, sorry, when they were obese, they they yeah. it would be harder for uh, them to run. Well, I guess. It just, we don't have real. I don't think we really saw differences in in wheel yeah. running. Um, if it was, it was very mild. Sometimes you see um, fewer pups born to moms that eat a high fat diet, but right. the wheel running, at least because they're not, we don't study animals after 10 or 15 weeks on a high fat diet. Because uh, so we're, studying, mm-hmm. we're studying mice that have only been on the, um, on the high fat diet for a few weeks. So they're not grossly right. obese. I guess I was wondering that, that humans don't, um, you know, we, we, we explain why, why it's a good idea. Well, you really need to look at uh, rodent studies for these studies because it you know it takes years and years and years. But obese humans don't tend to want to go out and run, right? So these are voluntary. You're not putting on a treadmill. They're choosing yeah. to run. Unfortunately, humans don't tend to act like that for a start. They don't tend to <laughs> choose to run mm. now that we're not hunter-gatherers. And, um, and then the obese ones are probably even less likely to, unfortunately. Yeah. I, there's no question there it's just a comment i guess so what what, yeah. what what do you do about so okay so if we think about putting this into practice so we've got some some obese people should we be telling them to to uh lose weight before they uh conceive or uh it's unlikely to happen try and get them to exercise yeah, yeah. well i think that that's the recommendations really mm-hmm. um you know if if your obstetrician is telling you, you know, you want to get pregnant, uh, whether you're the male or the female, the the advice is to be as lean as you can. I mean, if you're obese, you know, to eat a healthy diet um, and to be physically active. So I think there's really strong evidence to suggest that that's very important. Um, and, and by doing some of these animal studies, we're really trying to understand, you know, we're starting to learn why that is, what's the mechanisms. Um, and are there things that we can do to help women um, and, and men in terms of uh, passing on good, um, good epigenetic regulation for their, for their offspring so they'll have yeah. a healthy lifestyle. So I guess I'm wondering if that does really happen. So in an ideal world, I'm sure, um, you know, medical doctors would be saying, try and lose some weight and exercise before you get pregnant. But do you, does, it, does that really high in the list of things they think about, do you think? I know if you've got polycystic ovarian syndrome, 
that's just critical um, to increase fertility. Yeah, I think, I mean, probably most, most um, men and women don't go to the doctor beforehand and say, okay, I want to get pregnant exactly. in a year. What should I be doing over the next year? Most people end up there after they become pregnant. Exactly. Right? At that point, you know, it's eat a healthy diet, don't smoke, be as physically exactly. active as you can, you know, um, don't another, drink alcohol. The whole another one of the wheel running ones is I've thought about a bit because I've done that as well is um, I wonder if they partly, because it's obviously a lot, a lot less stressful than putting on a treadmill and making them run, which is what, what tends to happen. Um, but I wonder if they partly run so much because they're bored, you know, they're in this, this cage nothing else to do um, I, I know there are other studies that they show that if you put it in nature you put running wheels out in the middle of the country they <laughs> so do a I lot even, of running i even so saw a slug like it, I, think. I even saw a slug got on there and it was like doing about one millimeter or an hour or something um yeah. yeah yeah so i guess they haven't got much else to do but yes yeah, it's, it's really we have to emphasize again they're running like six to ten kilometers a day and these mice are right. like tiny so it's kind of like yeah. us running two marathons a day yeah. but um yeah it is very hard to know what the how to translate the amount that the mice are doing to what a human would need to do uh in order to have these effects but i can say that you know if we look at sod three as a marker this you know placental protein that mm -hmm. i talked about mm -hmm. before that we know is so important um in the in the health effects on the mice that um, the, the increases in SOD3 that are present in women that exercise are comparable to what's happening in the, in the mice. And they're Perfect. not doing anywhere near that amount of exercise. Uh, the, the women, the, this, the, the, the group of women that we were studying that had the increased levels were doing about 40, 40 minutes of um, moderate to vigorous intensity exercise a day. So. The other thing, I guess, is the way to look at it is that's their normal activity. So, um, you know, it's kind of like they normally run eight kilometers a day. So a human doing their normal activity might be that similar comparison. One study we did at one stage, which we said, okay, instead of having what most people do, which we have a, a cage with no running wheel and they don't do any running at all. Mm -hmm. And then they do training, which, which, you know, might be the running wheel or treadmill. We actually said, okay, if you want to look at the effect of training, you almost have to have the running wheel as their normal activity. And then you yep. add a treadmill to that yeah. to do the exercise training. Have you ever yeah. thought about that? Because it's, it kind of does your head in a way, in a way. but if you think through yeah. it, you go, hang on a minute, 99.9% .9 of studies ever done have been in the cage with no running wheels. So that's so right. unphysiologically sedentary that what does right. it even right. mean? You know? Right. Well, um, you know, a lot of people, and I think this too, the treatment really isn't the exercise. The treatment is the sedentary because normally, exactly. A mouse is active and like you said you know these out in the wild wheel cages are are utilized um they want to do this they want to be active so mm -hmm. the treatment is really more the lack of activity um that's what's not normal true. Um, so i think that's an, another way to to look at uh, this research on exercise that so many of us now do um that we're really studying what the body is supposed to be doing and exactly uh, the normal physiology of how you know you're talking about hunter gatherers you know that's that's where we came from and um so this is the sedentary behavior i think is more the um the treatment in a sense um if you think about it as a terms of in terms of studies yeah
Exactly. So maybe what it is is, you know, instead of people listening at home now thinking they've got to go out and, you know, run 10Ks a day or something to try and match, match the mouse at least, they should be thinking they just, if they're just normally active and, and you know, walking and and, and, and and trying to do it throughout the day or whatever, maybe that would be the, enough protection. What, what did you actually do in the, in the humans? Do you exercise the, do you exercise the woman? Yes. So these are collaborative studies that we did. Um, and so we haven't done any training studies. Um, these are collaborative studies we've done with um, uh, groups from Canada, University of Ottawa, Christy Adamo. Um, and we've also done some work with uh, Niels Janssen and some others in Denmark. Um, and these are ongoing studies that they have where they're using accelerometers and just monitoring the amount of exercise um, among you know, large groups of women and then um, taking the women that exercise the most and comparing them with the women that you know, sort of exercise okay, the least. Okay, perfect. Oh. So, now, one other thing I thought about with the studies we did was um, you know, if you've got the parents on a high-fat diet, Right, and then you mentioned that the offspring are on a normal diet. That that's something I thought about at one stage. That 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 switching of diets um, might be a bit different to what would happen in normal life. So you know, you imagine if you're in a family with they're not eating well or whatever, and then that's yeah. what you're seeing in utero. Yeah. And then suddenly, when you're born, they um, starting a healthy diet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which which could actually well, happen. Which which yeah. Yeah, but with the mice, I think that it's sort of a weaning thing too, right? Because they continue to, they're, they're, they're feeding from their mothers that are continuing on the high fat diet. So they are getting that. And I guess oh, it's they when, are, they, when they go off, yeah, when they go, when they're weaned, then they go on the, um, you know, the rodent chow. That's um, true. Yeah. All right. What I'm going to do now is ask to do a bit of a switch. You have someone like Laurie Goodyear on with, I don't know, 250 papers or something and 45,000 citations and all these awesome things. You think everything she does works. Is that right? Every study you've ever done works. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Every, everyone every, published every single fantastic. data that we uh, Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. I've been unlucky and you've been really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's not the way science works at all. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's technical failure um, where experiments don't work. Uh, you can just, it's not that the data is, it, sometimes the data just doesn't get generated. And, and it's a lot of uh, experimental, um, you know, we don't, there's not a, there's not a cookbook for everything that's done in science, right? We're constantly developing new methods and new procedures, and that is by trial and error to, to try to get experiments. So um, if you're studying cells, for example, you know, are they going to survive? If they don't survive, then obviously you can't ask your scientific question. So um, developing imaging technologies, not that we're really doing that, but, you know, there's just so uh, doing biochemical experiments experiments to study how cells signal within within the cell and how do they transmit how does one molecule tell another molecule what what to do so there's a, a lot of uh, a lot of time and energy that goes into um, experimental development and a lot of that a lot of those experiments don't go they don't work the first time it's rare that something works mm -hmm, the first mm -hmm. time and it, and it can be so it can it can be frustrating, um, and it can um, delay people's uh, research. And um, certainly, we have that. Um, a lot of times, you have what you think is the best hypothesis ever, but it 
it's not it doesn't work that way and so so sometimes that can be very frustrating and i a lot of times i'll hear students or um uh, or others say well we hope that this would happen and i always say no mm. no matter what a scientist does the no. scientist doesn't hope something well, the truth happen. Right, the scientist wants the results to be what the results are, um, and so um, you know. But a lot of times, uh, experiments don't go. They they seem like they're dead ends. But um, with a lot of perseverance and hard work, then usually we can find out the answers to the questions that we're looking at. And um, it always is a surprise because lots of times it leads us in unexpected directions. We learn new things. Um, exactly. We make new discoveries. So it's important not to just think, I, I thought this was going to happen, it didn't happen, so move on. Sometimes what you find, you know, you, you, you say, okay, well, let's run with that. What is going on? Yeah, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Now, one thing I wanted to ask is um, something I've thought about is with our studies as well, is how much of the effect do you think with the placenta or, you know, the sperm or whatever, is the actual high-fat fat diet? And how much is the obesity and, and everything that goes along with that? Do you, do you know? Yeah. Have you been able to tease that out at all? We haven't. We haven't really um, been able to do that. It hasn't been one of our big focuses because we're um, we're focusing more on the exercise. I think it's a really important question. Um, but I think um, because we do fairly short-term high-fat diets, there's not a huge amount of obesity um, in the mothers or the fathers. Um, uh, and you really need to do um, animals, you need to feed mice from a very young age, the high fat diet, and then maybe look at them a little bit later when and when they're really obese. Uh, we haven't also used any of the obesity models um, for our studies. Um, those are all things that I think would be interesting and important to do, but we haven't. Okay, so you did mention that earlier. Kind of, yeah, so so in a way, by doing the short term high fat feeding, you're you're kind of covering that question a bit anyway. So it's not yeah. it's not not like a massive obesity situation no, i guess yeah. yeah 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 um yeah the other thing i was thinking about with with you know there's obviously pros and cons of doing animal studies versus human studies and you know is it applicable and you said some of your findings sound like they are with the sod three and things one of the good things about doing animal studies is you haven't got those sociological factors you know that 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 the offspring is being affected by you know the the sociological factors of the parents, the fact that what they eat, whether they exercise or not, um, you know what I mean? Role modeling or whatever. You, you are mm -hmm. able, able to sort of separate that out and say how much of the effect is dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Is that a fair, fair comment? I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So that's, yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of vaguely talked about my stuff a bit, but I, I wouldn't mind just because it's still developmental origins of health and disease. So I don't know if you saw, we, so we actually did stuff where their offspring were born small for gestational age, and we showed that they became glucose intolerant. They, they weren't really diabetic later in life, but they, their glucose metabolism wasn't great. And we actually found if you actually just exercise them for four weeks early in life, so from when they weaned, and so basically from five weeks of age to nine weeks of age, we exercise them. And even that was able to have effects later in life. So their, their glucose metabolism was, was better. So, um, you know, that's, it's just, it's kind of crazy in a way because, you know, you exercising the father, exercising the mother, us exercising the offspring, it just seems like exercise, no matter when you do it, 
it's able to benefit so the glucose metabolism yeah. pathway. Yeah. Pathways. Yeah. 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 It is pretty amazing. It is uh, a very powerful uh, stimulus with beneficial effects. I mean, it's the mothers, it's the grandmothers, it's the fathers, it's a young age, older age. Um, there's very little uh, um, downside to exercising at definitely not any age. Yeah. The other thing I was just thinking, I guess, is um, you know, in a way, it's almost a good way of studying. Um, you know how it's like debatable sometimes, like when you get um, insulin resistant. Is it is it the liver that goes first, or is it the you know, is the, is the pancreas not secreting enough insulin or is it the muscle? In a way, you kind of get a, a bit of an angle on that because you were saying with the mother, it seems like it's like the liver and then with the father, it might be a bit of muscle. And then with us, with the early exercise, it was more the pancreas. You know, it was the, the beta cell mass, which produces right. the insulin. That was the thing that was reduced by 50% when they were born small. Yeah. If you exercise them early in life, they had normal beta cell mass later. So it's it's kind of interesting it's in a way it's i don't know if i'm you know extrapolating too much but in a way it's sort of showing that it doesn't matter actually what goes first you know because we're so integrated right probably right. everything else follows you know what i mean yeah um wow yeah i mean certainly i work on a diabetes institute so not so much now but it used to be everybody's you know had their favorite to organ that was you know in charge and responsible for type 2 diabetes but everything all that all the i think the liver is important you know the the muscle is important the adipose tissue is important the brown fat the brain controlling mm. things is important and certainly the pancreas is important so i think that that it, it's a lot of a, a, very many tissues are involved uh, in the regulation of close homeostasis and what we're finding is that exercise seems to have effects on all these tissues um uh, which may be you know we found that with the maternal exercise that there were huge effects on the fetal liver but now what we're studying is we're studying many other tissues too to understand whether the maternal exercise also affects you know the adipose um, the kidney the brain you know what are the other tissues so i, I think that you're right it's just all the different tissues are involved in terms of the consequences of diabetes and also the um, effects of exercise. The other thing, I guess, was becoming more and more apparent is how the crosstalk between organs that um, now they're all talking to each other. So yeah. it's, it's kind of easy yeah. to think the muscle might be talking to the liver and the fat and whatever, but it's even going the other way. Because you think, you know, when you're exercising, the muscle's contracting and fair enough, something right. might sure. be being released, but... Um, well, even... the other the other big line of research, major line of research in my laboratory right now is studying the adipose tissue and how the adipose tissue, and this is independent of pregnancy, um, but how the adipose tissue is dramatically changing with exercise and exercise training and how these, how the adipose tissue is talking to other tissues in the body and, and all the adaptations that are occurring in the different, in, in white adipose tissue, brown adipose tissue, the different white adipose tissue depots. So that, I think it's a extremely important area um, of understanding the benefits of exercise. So this is a, yeah, so people, yeah. people that don't know adipose is fat cells. Yes. So that's actually interesting. And it made me think, because um, Barbara Kahn, she's in Boston as well. She had that yes. classic study where they had, um, so you mentioned knockout before. So knocking out is where you, where you literally like 
get a mouse and you can genetically modify it so you like knock out one of the genes and then you can see what effect that has i know she had the classic study where she knocked out the glucose transporter glut4 in in muscle in muscle and it didn't have much effect um, on insulin sensitivity but when she knocked it out in the fat it had a greater effect is that right or have i yeah, fixed it up it had, it had the, the effects yeah 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 so so the fats so you're not doing exercise but we know that even with exercise you've got uh adipokines so uh, proteins released from fat which are released during exercise yeah, that's that what right? we're, we've been studying that we've discovered some adipokines, some exercise induced adipokines that are affecting other tissues ah, okay. and what we're also finding is that uh, when you exercise um you know lactate increases and that lactate is actually signaling the adipose tissue to um to generate adipokines and having adaptations so it's all the muscle talks wow. to fat the fat then secretes proteins that are affecting others so real true inter-tissue communications with exercise that's awesome it's amazing lactate just keeps coming up and i've asked george yeah. books to come on several times and i guess all, all i can do so this guy george books has been talking about lactate forever and now we know it's affecting appetite and all sorts of things yep. right this has been great i feel like i keep looking at my notes and feeling like we've left out big chunks of things but is there anything you think we haven't sort of covered um no no uh, been very right. so, information. so i wonder if we can have a like if you can give us some like takeaway messages that we're you know just three or four things or we want to take away from this chat yeah so i guess uh the main thing is that um you know i'm not an obstetrician obstetrician i'm not like um i i can't prescribe exercise to people or or when they're pregnant or how much they should do but certainly i think it's something important to talk to your physician about and i think that the more active a woman can be during pregnancy i think the, the better off the health of the child will be not just when they're a child but also into adulthood um, and I think that um, if we can really understand how exercise works in this regard um, it can really can really help with some of the metabolic diseases that we're seeing this these increases in metabolic disease so I think it's I think it's an extremely important area of research I think understanding mechanisms is so critical because this is how we can develop treatments, um, either treatments by exercising, doing certain types of exercise, or even for women that say have to be on bed rest. And are there, are there pharmacological treatments that we can develop based on what we in, in what we know from, mm. um, you know, from the exercise studies in, in mice, can we come up with treatments that can help women? So um, the same thing with men, with men, I think it's, it's very important to stay physically active. Um, and certainly if you're planning on uh, uh, having a child, uh, I think it's, it's extremely important, but exercise throughout life is good. And now we have more reason to exercise because um, it's affecting not just the person who's exercising, but their offspring and maybe even uh, the offspring. Wow. Okay. Actually, I can't help talking. I keep thinking, how old are your twins now? we're talking about offspring <laughs> offspring yeah well actually i have three offspring um yeah. i have uh twins uh that are 21 now 21 in college yep yep oh my gosh so, um a son and a daughter that are twins that are 21 and then i have an 18 year old son also so he's starting to look at colleges um 
and uh, my son and daughter are juniors in college right now. So um, they're, they're doing well. One is heading in your direction, um, oh, really? going to Australia actually for the spring semester. So oh, cool. Just, oh, and, I... and she's studying health and human physiological sciences. Uh, so oh, good. I guess that, that was passed on, I think, epigenetically. Epigenetically. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on. All right. And, Thank uh, you very much, I'll Glenn. See you That's next great. time. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. See you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.